This is Bart Peterson, and you are listening to the FCPA Compliance Report on the Compliance Podcast Network. This is Greg Gilchrist, and you are listening to the FCPA Compliance Report on the Compliance Podcast Network. This is Dan DeMarco, and you are listening to the FCPA Compliance Report on the Compliance Podcast Network. In this episode, James Kukios returns to discuss the firm's April newsletter on international anti-corruption developments. They include the DOJ reparation of $300 million to Malaysia in connection with 1MDB. Columbia officially enters the OECD. London court discharges third ever unexplained wealth order. And E&I resolves Algeria FCPA allegations. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox back for another episode. Today, I'm joined by James Kukios, partner at Morrison and Forster, fellow Wolverine. And we are here to talk about the firm's always great international anti-corruption newsletter this year. Excuse me, this episode, it's the April edition. Uh, First of all, James, uh, thank you for taking the time to visit with me and welcome back. Thanks for having me back, Tom. James, lots of great stuff in the April newsletter. So let's just dive right into it. Uh, You had a story about the DOJ announcing a repatriation of $300 million to Malaysia in connection with the 1MDB scandal. You've reported on this uh, as they have occurred over the uh, last, uh, I guess, couple of years. But I I wanted to really use this as a way to uh, have you uh, educate us. How does the uh, Anti-Kleptocracy Act work and how do DOJ lawyers in the uh, FCPA unit work in connection with your uh, colleagues in the anti-kleptocracy unit uh, to further the uh, the goals of, of getting money back to those who have been harmed by bribery, corruption, or, or other fraud? Well, to set the table, what we're talking about in, in specifically is the on April 14th of 2020, DOJ announced it had repatriated to Malaysia approximately $300 million in funds that were allegedly misappropriated from 1MBD, uh, a Malaysian sovereign wealth fund. Um, That actually brings the total that's been returned or assisted in in returning to Malaysia of over $600 million, so quite a bit of money. Um, So there's obviously two sides of this coin here from DOJ. You have the fraud section, which pursues criminal prosecutions of foreign bribery, and then you have the money laundering and asset recovery section, which really goes after the kleptocracy funds and tries to get the money away from the officials and the people who have stolen the money, and in some cases, get the money back to the country where it was stolen. It's interesting. There's no, um, there's no requirement in the U.S. law that the forfeited money has to be repatriated, uh, in fact, there's some question about whether there's actually a specific mechanism to allow for that. And in some cases, DOJ decides we really can't give the money back to, for example, a corrupt regime. Um, but where that's not present, especially from the MLARS side, the money laundering asset recovery side, um, they work from the kleptocracy initiative to try to seize that money that's been stolen and get it back to the government from which it has been stolen so that the people can use it for its intended purposes. So this is one of those examples um, where DOJ has decided, you know, it's appropriate and and correct to try to get the money back to Malaysia. Now, they don't always work together, the fraud section and the money laundering section. Um, Both sections can do their own independent investigations and independent um, work. And so sometimes you won't see necessarily a fraud section prosecutor involved 
um, in a kleptocracy case and vice versa. You won't always see a kleptocracy prosecutor involved in a um, fraud section case. In this case, it appears that DOJ and um, the two sections are working together um, on this. And so on the one hand, you have the fraud section that's going after the people uh, and companies who may have been responsible criminally for the violation. And then you have the money laundering section, which is trying to get that money and return it back to Malaysia. So, James, as um, um, you really uh, see this as part of the, the greater toolkit uh, the Department of Justice has, and uh, it seems I've seen uh, the unit work uh, and a kleptocracy unit work uh, apparently separately, but uh, I guess I wanted to really uh, ask about the coordination between the two and how closely you would work together. It really depends on case by case. Um, sometimes we would have, I was in the fraud section, and sometimes we would have a, an MLR's attorney working on the case with us. Other times we'd go our separate ways, and it would just be kind of a case-to-case basis. It is interesting to know also um, when the FBI created their um, foreign corruption squads a couple of years ago, you know, they have a dual mandate to work on both the criminal side and the asset forfeiture side. So you have also that aspect joined in the FBI agents who are investigating these cases. So it really depends. I mean, MLARs and the fraud section are in the same building in Washington, D.C. Um, you know, you can just get in an elevator and go up there. There is a lot of close coordination depending on the case, but not every case does have the asset forfeiture aspect if you're the fraud section, and not every case has the fraud section side if you're in the asset forfeiture part of it. But it is, as you say, it's um, two different tools in the toolkit, very important tools um, that DOJ uses as a a totality to fight foreign bribery. Uh, James, up next, we have Columbia officially entering the OECD. I was wondering if you could tell us perhaps what the process is and what does this mean for Columbia or those doing business in Columbia? It's a very, very long, detailed, and rigorous process. Uh, essentially, in order to become an OECD member, uh, it's a five-year accession process, and the country has to undergo in-depth reviews by 23 different OECD committees, uh, and it will often require major reforms to legislation um, and policies and practices so that the country is in conformity with OEC standards. So this can go um, everything from labor issues to justice system reform to corporate governance of state-owned enterprises to anti-bribery to trade and the establishment of a national policy on industrial chemicals and waste management. It really is extremely broad, extremely rigorous process in order to get full accession to the OECD. Now, from an anti-bribery perspective, um, Colombia has been part of the working group on bribery for a number of years. You have to be in order to become a full member of the OECD. So they have been a part of the anti-bribery convention for a number of years, and they have been um, bringing their anti-bribery laws and practices up to OECD, OECD standards. And then the entire OECD decides um, all those 23 committees decide that you are at a place as a country that you have satisfied our standards and you can be accepted as a full member of the OECD. So it's a very, very rigorous process. Um, we reported on this less because it doesn't quite necessarily affect Colombia 
from an anti-bribery standpoint because it has been a member of the working group for so long, but just that it's a great milestone for the country. It's now fully um, uh, integrated into the OECD. James, next up, uh, we had a story of the London High Court discharging the third ever unexplained wealth order. I think this is the first time we had the London High Court discharge an order, and I was wondering if you saw this as really driven by the facts of the case, or is this a perhaps a trend we need to watch? Well, this is very interesting because it's the, a relatively new tool to for uh, UK law enforcement authorities to use. And so I think what we're, we're actually seeing here is kind of the birth of the standards that will be applied in unexplained wealth orders. So just to set the table a little bit, uh, the Criminal Finances Act 2017 entered into force in January of 2018, and that legislation is what introduced unexplained wealth orders. Those orders require those who are suspected of corruption to explain the sources of their wealth, and they can be issued on the request of a UK enforcement authority against property valued in excess of 50,000 pounds if the respondent is a politically exposed person. Now, late last year, we had the first public and um, publicly revealed use of an unexplained wealth order, or UWO, and that was successful. Uh, it, 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 it issued against um, politically exposed people, and it was upheld, and it, it worked well. This time, though, um, the, the target of the unexplained wealth order, which were some folks who lived in very, um, very pricey real estate in London, they challenged it. They said, you know, the, the um, National Crime Agency in this specific instance um, did not meet its burden of showing that the house we live in is actually, was actually purchased through the proceeds of crime. And the judge agreed. Um, basically, what happened here is that the, technically speaking, the, the properties were, were owned by offshore companies. And there was a big web of offshore companies that, that owned this. And so the judge said, you did not, National Crime Agency, meet your burden of showing that the ultimate source of the money used to purchase this house, which is held by this web of um, shell companies, um, was the proceeds of corruption from Kazakhstan. So what we're seeing here is courts wrestling with what that standard is. At least this court was convinced that it required a higher showing than the NCA was able to make this time. The NCA has vowed to appeal. And I think now that we have kind of a blueprint of targets of these orders to be able to potentially challenge these, there may be additional legislation and additional clarity on what the standards are for the use of UWOs. I think for their part, UK law enforcement is committed to continuing to use these orders. They're a very powerful tool. They basically put, shift the burden to the owner of the property to prove that their, their property was not bought by corruption. Uh, and so I think we're going to see the development of that standard. So in summary time, I would say this is really early days, and we need to watch these developments to see how the standard evolves over the next couple of years. James, next up, we had a warning from the OECD of the risks of bribery uh, in the era of coronavirus. In a prior podcast, we talked about 
the messages that the Department of Justice is sending around uh, continued uh, rigorous FCPA enforcement. This OECD warning, though, is a little bit different. So I was wondering, what are some of the key differences you see? And is, um, I guess, is this message that they are putting out that, that you guys wrote about in April, is is that something that really uh, your clients are, are listening to this types of message? Yeah, so there's really two aspects of the OECD message that are notable. Number one is, the OECD says that there's a real risk that the global response to the coronavirus pandemic um, could be undermined by bribery. And they point to the fact that uh, much of the response deals with healthcare. And over the history of um, foreign bribery enforcement, we've seen healthcare being a repeat player in bribery. Um, obviously, there's a lot of state owned and um, state involvement in healthcare in many countries. Um, and the potential for bribing certain officials to buy your products or prescribe your um, medicines to, for, for their hospitals and clinics and for their patients. And so the OECD is expressing concern that their corruption in the healthcare industry could actually undermine the response to the coronavirus pandemic. We actually covered that in March as well. There was um, some watchdog groups, for example, in South Africa that were very concerned that you know, first responders, uh, um, fire departments, um, medics, th their agencies have been corrupted. And then also you have the hospitals and the, things like that. So there's definitely global concern that bribery may be able, uh, may undermine the response to the pandemic. The second message um, that the OECD was delivering is that, okay, you know, there could be historical factors that undermine the response. Now there's new factors that could undermine the response in that if I'm buying your ventilator, there's a, a new corruption risk that I could get bribed to buy your ventilator instead of your, your um, competitor's ventilator. And so the OECD is really saying, look, you really need to respect the rule of law. You need to be transparent and you need to make sure that the health care and pharmaceutical products are delivered in the most efficient and effective way possible and are not undermined by corruption. And the OECD vowed to also study that and examine it and see, you know, was there any corruption in the coronavirus pandemic response? And if so, what can we do about that um, to help ensure that it won't happen in the future? So it's, I think it's very consistent, the OECD message, with what some other nonprofits and watchdog organizations have seen. And they're really sending out a very important message that we cannot let corruption stand in the way of getting the healthcare um, treatment that that we need to get to people to, to combat this epidemic. James, in an earlier podcast, you talked about an OECD country report as an extraordinarily useful tool for those who might want to do business in that country or looking to uh, garner more information on that country. It seems to me, after your description, this report could also be a part of an overall risk assessment or at least background that a company uh, might use to uh, determine if, if they moved into certain business lines or products that could have an enhanced risk, which they need to might need to manage. Would that be a fair assessment? I think that's right. The OECD reports are great. They put a lot of time and effort. They've got a lot of smart people who work very hard on these reports. And I think that they're great tools. And 
We don't know exactly what this report is going to look like or if there will be a specific report. Um, they did vow to examine this, but if there is a report that's released from this, I would commend that to everybody's reading list. Well, James, unfortunately, we are near the end of our time for this uh, episode. We're going to link to the April newsletter in our show notes. Uh, I frankly can't wait to see what May and June will bring us. So uh, I hope we can continue the conversation. Thanks, Tom. Go Blue. Go Blue. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of the FCPA Compliance Report. If you have any questions on this episode, you can email me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. I would greatly appreciate it if you would rate our podcast and iTunes as would help us increase our rankings and expanding our listener base for the oldest podcast in compliance. If you have any questions you'd like explored on this podcast, please send them to me as well, or you can leave them on the Compliance Podcast Network. The FCPA Compliance Report is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. I hope you'll join us again next week where we take up another issue in FCPA and compliance. Thanks again for listening. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.